Hamish. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to be back uh, with you. I had a lovely time in Singapore. Uh, tried durian. Um, played cricket, as you do in Singapore. And uh, had, a, had a great time with John and Beck. But it's good to be back. Uh, what's, not there, what's there not to like about coming back to this Sydney weather, hey? Uh, well, let's pray as we come to God's word. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for uh, this story in Judges 7 and 8. Um, Lord, we thank you for the clear message that it is you who saves and wasn't Gideon or the Israelites. Um, Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word and give us ears to hear uh, and to understand what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just before we start, um, we're going to do something a little bit different today at the end. Uh, so sometimes, as you know, we have reflection time. Um, but to do something a bit different, but to still aid us in trying to reflect on the passage, we're going to try a question time. And um, have we managed to... Um, is my clicker not on? Oh, yeah. So under the, under the first slide there, there's a, you can see the blue bit that's highlighted. Q&A, um, there's a number. So think of your questions. Uh, and they might just be reflections too on the passage, uh, reflections about applying the text. That would be great as well. So, so think of those as you go along and um, message them in uh, as, we, as we go through it. Well, Anakin Skywalker is one of the classic examples of the flawed hero, isn't he? Uh, I don't know if you're a Star Wars fan, but I'm sure you've heard of Anakin. Uh, let me start off by saying for what it's worth that I never liked Anakin. Uh, I found him annoying. Uh, and even before he turned to the dark side, he came across to me as an entitled whinger. So uh, I always kind of secretly hoped that he'd have a bad ending, and, well, he does. Uh, anyway, like him or hate him, Anakin starts off as a good guy, doesn't he? He has an unsettling dream that his wife, Padme, will die in childbirth. He finds himself then tortured in, by dread and anger, and in order to save her, he turns to the dark side of the Force. And eventually, you know the story, he becomes a Sith Lord, the most powerful Sith Lord, Darth Vader. Padme, as she gives birth, doesn't take the news of Anakin turning to the dark side well, and uh, it basically, she basically dies of a broken heart. But then, by the end of the story, Anakin turns a full circle. He rejects the dark side in order to save his son, Luke. The flawed character of Anakin finds redemption by the end. Well, in today's story in Judges uh, 7, we'll also be looking at 8, we, we just read 7, we read about another flawed hero, Gideon. Like Anakin, he starts out well. He lacks confidence, uh, he doubts his ability to be used by God, to deliver the people he is afraid. But actually, as we'll see, these things give him the humility to be able to trust God rather than himself. But then things go belly up 
for Gideon. We didn't read it. In, in chapter 8, we'll be looking at it. A bit of success proves to be a dangerous thing for Gideon. And in the end, we find Gideon trusting not in God, but in his own resources. And that proves disastrous, not only for Gideon, but also for Israel. And tragically, there's no Darth Vader ending for Gideon. After starting off well, the end of his story is a downward spiral. His life mirrors the story of Israel, doesn't it? As we've been seen, as we've been going along in the book of Judges. As we've seen, Judges isn't just a repeating cycle, like a washing machine going around and around of Israel sinning, crying out to God being saved. They sin it and it goes round and round. It's actually a depressing downward spiral, like water going down the plug hole of a desperately sinful people who go from bad to worse. But Judges 7 and 8, like the whole book of Judges, isn't just a depressing story of a flawed hero and a sinful people. That would be pretty bleak if it was, if that's what it was all about. Because the real story of this hero, the one who brings victory against Israel's enemies and saves his people, is of course God. Isn't it? In fact, the story of Gideon is actually about how Gideon and Israel can't save themselves. It is only ever God's hand who delivers them from slavery, who brings peace and salvation to a people who bring chaos upon themselves. And God uses a flawed hero like Gideon to show that it's his strength and not Israel's power that delivers them. So that's where we're going today. Um, I've got three points as we go through these three chapters. Number one, God brings a victory that Israel can't boast about. Two, he uses Gideon, the not-so-brave, to do that. And then thirdly, sadly, Gideon doesn't end well. He ends up being well and truly a man of the people, a flawed hero just like the people, just like Israel that he leads. So let's get into it. Uh, Our first point, a victory that Israel can't boast about. Chapter 7 starts off with Israel, sorry, um, yeah, Gideon with Israel, about to attack the Midianites who have been oppressing Israel. Just a quick uh, recap of chapter 6. You may remember, it's a while ago now, but um, Carr um, preached to us, on, the, on chapter 6, which is where the story of Gideon begins. And if you remember back that far, Gideon has been called by God to lead the people uh, to defeat Midian. Gideon, though, was less than excited about the whole idea. Like Moses, he didn't think that he was up to the job. When God asks him to destroy his father's Asherah pole, where the people worshipped um, the, the god Baal, Uh, He has to do it at night because he's afraid of the people. And he wants God to make it crystal clear that he is with him, so he asks for a sign, a pretty unusual sign, not once but twice, with a fleece of wool. So God God gives him the sign and Israel, uh, and and eventually Gideon uh, has the confidence 
and is reassured that God is with him. And so now we come to the beginning of chapter 7. Gideon is getting ready to march off to war with 32,000 men. Uh, it sounds a lot, but it's actually a pretty modest amount of uh, fighting men compared with 130 plus Midianites that they face. A huge horde. But it's still too many for God. The odds are still too good for God. Have a look at verse 2. The Lord said to Midian, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast about me. My own strength had saved me, they would say. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 men remained. God was wanting to go to the most extreme lengths to pull off a victory that no one could ever think was due to Israel's own power. Why? <coughs> well, so Israel wouldn't boast against God. The original language actually says, so Israel doesn't boast over me, saying my own hand has saved me. So the idea of boasting over God suggests the idea of putting themselves above God, doesn't it? Putting themselves in God's place, seeing themselves as their own saviours rather than God as the saviour. So God goes to great lengths to make sure that that doesn't happen because he knew that that's exactly what Israel was so prone to do time and time again. In fact, it was Israel's default position, as we've seen already through the book of Judges, to see themselves as their own saviours, to see that they were in control. But it's not just Israel, is it? If we're honest with ourselves, we see ourselves in this story too. We might say we trust in God and, 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 and we really believe it. We love Jesus. We know he died for us. We know he is our king. But that same fatal flaw that the Israelites had is also part of our DNA as well. Our default position, even as Christians, is to think that we're in control, that we can strategize, plan, scheme, work hard to make sure that life works out. Yeah, we believe the right things, but sometimes we actually live as, um, as Christian atheists. So God tells Gideon to send everyone home who is afraid. So 22,000 men get cold feet and left. At this point, I would have been getting a bit nervous if I was Gideon. Only 10,000 men, remember we were up against 130,000. Only 10,000 men remain against these countless hordes of Midian. But God still wasn't satisfied. He tells Gideon to take the men down to get a drink. Whoever laps the water like a dog set aside, <coughs> everyone else send home. Now, you may have heard uh, all sorts of theories about why God chooses these 300 men who lap. 
saying things like, well, they were more diligent and careful. They drank in a way where they kept one eye out for possible enemies, uh, stuff like that. But I think that's rubbish. There's nothing in the text that says why God chose them. It was really simply a way of God separating uh, the two groups of people. So the upshot is that only 300 men who lapped water, they were the ones who God uh, chose to take into battle. Verse 7, have a look at verse 7. The Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. 300 against 130,000. Now, if you're into betting, you're not going to put your money on Israel with those sorts of odds. And, of course, that's exactly the point, isn't it? God wants the people to know with absolute certainty that they can't and they won't win by their own strength. It has to be God who shows up if they're going to win. When the Midianites are defeated and Israel is saved, they are not going to be able to brag about it. The glory is only going to go to God. He was willing to go to extreme lengths to drive that point home to the Israelites. And friends, God hasn't changed. And he deals no differently with us. He will go to any lengths to make sure that we know that we can't save ourselves. And that process may be painful. It may involve God stripping away the things that we trust in, the things that give us security, so that we know, that we really know, that we are not just saved by trusting in Jesus on the day that we make a decision, but that, we, but that every day, every hour, each minute, it's only by his grace and strength that we are able to keep going, keep living and keep trusting in him. And so what that means is that when life gets tough, when our plans go belly up, when our dreams get shattered, God is using those painful things to shake our self-reliance, our self-confidence, to help, oursel- to, to help ourselves out, um, sorry, uh, our, our, our self-reliance where we trust in ourselves. So parents, if you're a young parent, when you feel like you hardly have energy to get through the day and feed your kids and provide for them, let alone achieve anything else. Older parents, if you're tearing your hair out, feeling like you're walking in the dark, trying to understand and love your teenagers or even your adult children, God is using your weakness and sense of inadequacy to show you that he is your sufficiency. For you workers and uni students, if you feel like no matter how hard you work, you just can't please your boss, or you can't get the grades you want, or you face disappointment for one reason or another at your results, if you're shaken by self-doubt, or if you're struggling relationally, feeling lonely, isolated, awkward, all these things are really hard to walk through, but God brings them. He allows them. They're from his hand and he uses those struggles to keep us throwing out empty hands to him 
saying, God, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. I need you. So 300 men fight the Midianites. Understandably, God is sli- Gideon rather is slightly that ne- God's not nervous. Gideon is slightly nervous. Uh, in fact, he's scared. How on earth is this going to end well? Well, God understands how Gideon feels. And once again, he's gracious and gentle with him, like he was before back in chapter 6. Our second point is that Gideon, the not, he knows Gideon the not-so-brave. Because God understands Gideon and the fears, fears he has, he graciously gives him a sign so he will be confident that God will come through for him. Have a look at verse 9. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During the night the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So Gideon does just that. Uh, He and Pura sneak to the edge of the camp and they eavesdrop on a conversation between two men. One of them is having a strange dream, verse 13. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. Well, he's made his sure of the meaning of this dream, verse 14. This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. Well, this satisfies Gideon. God is really going to defeat them. Even the fearful Gideon is now confident that God is with them. And so verse 15, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Gideon then leaps into action. We're not told whether the plan that he comes up with is his or God's. Uh, It's certainly a genius move, isn't it? Uh, Each of the 300 men is given um, a glass, probably on a pole, uh, and a trumpet. They surround the Midianite camp and blow the trumpets and smash the jars. They cry out a sword for God and for the Lord and for Gideon. The irony is that there's not a sword amongst them. What follows is then quite bizarre, verse 22. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittar towards Zerarah as far as the border of Abel, Meholah and Tabath. It seems like Gideon's plan was to make it seem like the Israelite army was huge by making all this noise, surrounding the camp so it seemed like they were surrounded on all sides. And it, they certainly had the element of surprise because this was the middle of the night. But it doesn't account for the Midianites all suddenly deciding it was a good idea once they woke up surprised to turn their swords on each other and slaughter each other. The whole way that the Israelites won was all to drive the point home that this was no ordinary victory. 
It was God's hand at play all the way. From the way that the weird but hardly terrifying dream of one small loaf of bread rolling into the camp and knocking over one tent is interpreted as Gideon defeating the whole army to how God causes Midian to self-destruct when they hear a loud noise, he's showing Israel that this is all God and they were just coming along for the ride. Well, story goes on, Midian has been routed and running for their lives. Gideon calls for, for reinforcements for the mopping up operation. He sends messages to Ephraim and Manasseh. They're the two most powerful of the northern tribes to come down to the Jordan River and capture the fleeing armies as they try to cross. And the men of Ephraim capture Oreb and Zeb, the two princes of Midian. But Ephraim, it turns out, is a bit peeved at the whole episode. You see, they weren't called to the original battle. They were only called for the mopping up operation. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, Why didn't you call us, the Ephraimites say, Why didn't you call us to help? They ask. Gideon responds wisely. Look, guys, you are the ones who captured the princes. What you've done is better than anything I've done. And that smooths over the tension. By the beginning of chapter 8, the victory is won, all except for two kings who um, have to wait till uh, chapter 8 to be captured. But they're on the run and God has saved Israel. And Gideon the brave, after a pretty reluctant start, looks like that he's turning out pretty well in the end. He's obeyed God. In the end, he's trusted him. He's gone out into battle confidently and he's acted wisely in turning away the wrath of the Ephraimites. And God uses him to bring victory. But in chapter 8, Gideon then starts to take matters into his own hands. And from there, it's all downhill. We haven't got time to read the whole chapter, but we'll, we'll pick up the story as we go. Uh, and that's our, our third point is that Gideon turns out to be very much a man of the people, a man just like Israel, sinful and flawed. Things start to unravel from chapter 8, verse 4. Gideon and his 300 men are hot on the heels of these two kings, Zeba and Zalmanah are their names. He comes to a place called Succoth and asks the people to give his exhausted men some food. The leaders of Succoth are unwilling. Have you already captured these two kings that we shall give you bread, they ask? In other words, they're scared that the kings are still uh, well and truly alive and they'll come back and take reprisals on them for helping Gideon. Gideon isn't happy, verse 7, chapter 8, verse 7. So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmanah into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Gideon then goes on to another town, a place called Penuel, and tries his luck there. And he's met with the same answer. And in response, he says in verse 9, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower in the city. Uh, and the implication being killing the people who are in the tower. Well, Gideon keeps going and he ends up capturing the two kings and killing them. Uh, and so 
uh, everything is over. The Midianites are defeated once and for all. But then he goes to a lot of trouble to get the names of all 77 elders in Succoth so that he would be, they would be on the receiving end of a good lashing of thorns and briars. After doing that, after whipping them well and truly, he goes one better with the men of Penuel. Verse 17, And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Remember, these are Israelites, so Gideon is killing his own people, getting revenge on them refusing to give him bread. What we see here is the story of two Gideons. In chapter 7, Gideon was afraid, lacking confidence, having to be led all the way by God. Now, in chapter 8, we see Gideon confident, full of initiative, taking matters into his own hands, taking revenge for himself rather than for God. Well, uh, as I said, the two kings, Zebra and Zalmanah, are, uh, are captured and killed. Gideon is the hero. And now Israel wants to make Gideon king. Let's pick it up in verse 22. Rule over us, they say, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So Gideon seems to be responding humbly and wisely. He acknowledges that God alone is their rightful king. He refuses their request. But then there's a curious little detail later on that unfortunately we miss in English. Uh, Have a look at verse 30. Now Gideon had 70 sons. That's quite a lot. Keep him busy, wouldn't it? His own offspring, for he had many wives. That, That as well would keep him busy. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. The name of his son Abimelech means my father is king. My father is king. So remember that Gideon wasn't king. He refused to be king. Curious, it seems that even though he didn't take on the title as king, he harboured ambitions of being their ruler nonetheless. Then after turning down Israel's request to make him king, Gideon comes back with a request of his own. He asks them for all their gold earrings that they took uh, as plunder from the Midianites, which actually sounds a lot like, you know, the story back in Exodus when the Israelites make the golden calf, where the people, um, where um, Aaron asks all the Israelites to give them all their gold um, gold jewellery that he melts down into a golden calf. He says echoes of that story. Gideon then uses the gold to make an ephod. Now what's an ephod? An ephod was the thing that a priest swore. Uh, it was a special ceremonial like a, like a jacket thing with, with jewels and stuff. Um, only the priest was allowed to wear it They're a special ceremonial thing that they put on to symbolise the priest communicating with God and to hear his will. So the ephod represented the one who would hear from God uh, and, and respond to what he says. 
But it didn't turn out so well. Have a look in verse 27. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So apparently, instead of Gideon or someone else wearing this thing, acting as a priest, he set it up and he and Israel ended up worshipping this ephod rather than God. After starting out well and trusting God to lead him into battle, Gideon ends up being very much a man of the people, just like Israel, worshipping a lump of gold and turning away from the one who saved him. Success ends up being a dangerous thing for Gideon. He grew in confidence, which became self-reliance. He ended up putting his own agenda before God's. And then pretty soon God gets dethroned and Gideon takes his place. And friends, isn't that the case with us too? Aren't we just as prone to self-reliance, trusting in ourselves rather than God? After starting out well, Gideon ends up a man of the people. He turns out just like Israel. Verse 33. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Perith as their God. They did not remember the Lord their God, who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon in spite of all the good things he had done for them. So the people are just like Gideon. Gideon is just like the people. Well, like so much of Judges, we can easily go away from this feeling a bit depressed, can't we? It seems like a fairy tale story. Gideon was a hero, but then he ends up failing, just like most of the other judges, just like Israel constantly fails. Even the hero who shows so much promise turns out just like Israel. In fact, the one who Israel turned to and relied on ends up leading Israel back into sin. But God doesn't leave us there. Just as he didn't abandon Israel, judges isn't the final word. And I want to finish with a place that judges pushes us towards. Because the whole book of Judges is like a signpost saying, no, this is not the end of the story. This is not the end of the story. Judges points, in fact, to a person. A person who, unlike Gideon, would be a faithful saviour. We've seen through Judges that Israel can't save herself. And today we saw that even the judge God raised up can't save himself. In fact, he proves to be part of the problem. Israel had to wait for another saviour, one who would be a real king. And Jesus, unlike the judges, perfectly obeyed his father. Like God, like Gideon rather, he saved us without a sword as well. He saved us through love and sacrifice. When he died on the cross for our sins, 
He pulled off a victory the enemy never expected. He saved us in a way that we know without a shadow of doubt is all his work. And we contributed nothing towards us. We contribute nothing towards our salvation except our sin. And we can trust in this saviour. He delights to take our empty hands and our flawed lives and every sinful part of us to take us just as we are and give us peace. The Israelites enjoyed peace for a few years under Gideon, but it didn't last, did it? But the peace that Jesus offers is peace forever that comes from being united with God under his perfect saviour. Amen. Well, get the band up. Uh, we'll have, uh, we'll respond with a song, and then we'll, uh, if you if you get, got those questions, uh, send them in, and then we'll have a brief question time. We've got some great questions come in. Uh, let's see how we go. <clears throat> First question: How do we know Gideon's harshness on the towns that didn't give him bread is supposed to be seen in a negative light on his, on his character? Uh, sometimes it's hard to understand what's morally right in the eyes of God in the Old Testament. Perhaps Gideon's response was a godly response since the towns failed to have faith that God would deliver the kings into Israel's hands. <clears throat> yeah, that, that, that's a really good question and, and quite a legitimate comment, I think. Um, Bottom line is we don't know for sure because like a lot of things in Old Testament narrative, things are just stated without uh, any kind of commentary on whether it's right or wrong. But I think in the context, um, the contrast between Gideon being so wise in his response in smoothing over the difficulty with the Ephraimites at the beginning of chapter 8 and then the contrast between that and the harshness of his response uh, later on in the chapter, I think is suggestive that um, Gideon was on a downward spiral. Uh, and there's no mention that you know the Lord led him to do whatever uh, against these people. Um, and I think um, it just, just reads like an over-the-top response. To mind, uh, so I think we probably are designed to see it in a negative life. But but yeah, you've got to make your own mind up uh, about that. Uh, thanks, that was a great question. Um, uh, let's see what else we got. Why doesn't the Old Testament make it sound like having lots of wives and concubines is a bad thing? It's always mentioned as a matter of fact, especially in regards to people who seem to be examples of faith. That's a, another great question. You're right. Uh, it is just mentioned as, as something uh, that, that, that is. Uh, but so is slavery, okay? In the Old Testament, um, slavery is mentioned without much uh, kind of um, critical commentary on it. Um, and, and I think the answer is that um, we've got to understand that these were different times. Uh, they were a very different culture. There was lots in that culture that, that just was, that God did not necessarily uh, approve of. Uh, and if you 
look at um, God's original design for men and women, it was to take a, a wife uh, and the two would become one flesh. I mean, it doesn't really um, flesh out, um, kind of expand on that as, re- as regards to how many wives, but uh, I think taking that principle, it makes it difficult to be one flesh with five or six wives, doesn't it? Um, and uh, I, I, think, I think we probably are meant to see it, again, as part of the package for Gideon, uh, the fact that he was on a downhill spiral, that's just one more piece of evidence uh, that he wasn't really um, walking closely with God, wasn't really being obedient. Um, what else we got? Um, how do I practically bridge the tension between finding our self-sufficiency in God and our own effort, diligence, perseverance in work, raising children or relationships? Great question. Um, I would say, think about what Hazy said on the weekend away, uh, if you were there. So remember what Andrew said, that um, we need to... God gives us freedom to make our own decisions, um, but the background to that is that we are trusting that he is good, that he is in control, that he is sovereign. Um, And so we are making our decisions not um, out of um, trusting in ourselves, uh, but in the context of prayer and trusting God to guide us um, every step of the way. But the way he guides us isn't to give us a bolt out of the blue, give us a dream. Um, but that he gives us wisdom. He gives us his spirit to make a decision. So in practice, it means that, uh, well, if you're trying to decide who to marry, God doesn't tell you who to marry. But God gives us wisdom, and as long as she's a Christian, as long as she's walking with God, or he's walking with God, uh, then it's going to be within God's will. Um, So... Uh, yeah, that, that's a great question. Sorry we haven't got time to go into more detail. Uh, maybe one more. Um, is there any significance to the specific actions of lapping water with cupped hands or drinking on your knees? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, as I said, I don't think there's we're to read anything into it. Uh, some people, as I said, have said that the ones lapping water like a dog were chosen because they were more diligent, that they were looking up. I think they're absolute rubbish. Uh, and the reason is that, um, if, th- th- that if that was the case, if God chose the more worthy people in a sense, that flies in the face of the whole message. Uh, so the whole message, remember, is that God chooses weak people, weak instruments um, to fulfil his purposes. If he does that, why would he choose the, the kind of um, most diligent warriors um, to fulfil his purpose. He would be more likely to choose the weaker ones. But uh, I, I don't think, uh, flipping it on its head, I don't think it means they were any more or less worthy uh, than the others who were chosen. So I don't think there's any significance. Um, great, thanks for that. Um, so my desire in, in, in this time isn't just to kind of answer, um, yeah, 
try, try to think through, gain more knowledge from the text to, to uh, uh, look at things that pique our intellectual uh, interests. So I think my desire in doing this is to just to help us to think about uh, applying God's word and, and I'm hoping that this is uh, something, a helpful tool that might help us in that. Thanks. Thanks.